0: Welcome to the Transgender School podcast, where we talk about diverse LGBTQ identities and experiences so that we can all be better allies and advocates.
1: I'm Bridget. My daughter Jackie came out as a transgender woman when she was 19. I was totally unprepared, but I've learned a lot since then. When I came to terms with my identity,
0: I realized that I needed to transition, but coming out was very stressful. Now I want to help other trans people navigate their own experiences.
1: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Transgender School Podcast. We're so thrilled to have a very special guest here today, Whitney Workman, who is the manager of the Pride Center at California State University, Northridge, and I'm proudly wearing my CSUN alum t-shirt for an important reason today. I was a student at Cal State Northridge for my undergrad and my graduate work. I'm also a retired professor, Professor Emeritus from Cal State Northridge, and I got to meet and hear Whitney speak recently at a training that I was helping to facilitate for the Educational Opportunity Program, and I was just blown away. I should have known better. I should have known more about the Pride Center. But honestly, when I was teaching, it was really toward the end of my teaching career that the Pride Center even Opened up at Cal State Northridge. So when I heard Whitney's presentation about the services and the space that has been created at the Pride Center and the welcoming nature of that space for students who are LGBTQ plus and allies to come and hang out and be part of all kinds of activities and programs and discussions, I was just blown away. I was really brought to tears because I wasn't aware of this. And so I wanted to ask Whitney, and thankfully they were very uh, welcome to come and have this conversation with us to share everything that you shared, Whitney, in that presentation that you did with our audience so that parents, educators, educators, campus administrators students everyone can be more aware about how to do this kind of work in higher education we've talked about it in earlier years of education but we need to talk about creating places like the pride center and services and programs like the ones that you do as a model for the cutting edge of what's happening in higher education so welcome and thank you for coming to talk with us about this i'd love to just ask you the first question can you tell us more about yourself and how you ended up being the manager of the pride center at Cal State Northridge
2: yeah so my name is Whitney Workman my pronouns are Faye or they i grew up in houston texas i actually kind of thought i was going to end up being like a psychiatrist so i was in one of those magnet schools that are geared towards like certain professional careers and so mine was like medical focused so i had done rotations in hospitals including a psychiatric hospital, as well as gynecology and general surgery. And I was just, well, actually, I had one of my teachers and she was like, you have no bedside manner. And I was like, that's kind of important <laughs> if I want to be here. So maybe this isn't it for me. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, this isn't my vibe, but I want to really explore I was really, I spent a lot of time in online communities as a high schooler. I actually, in my high school, I was the second person ever to come out publicly. And the person who was the first person was actually the one who initiated the creation of our GSA. So that's really where I feel like I got started in this kind of work is being one of the few out people in my high school and really even you know, fighting with admin in that context of like understanding the gravity of notifying parents that students are trans in in the k-12 setting and the harm that that can do and dress codes and all that kind of stuff so um, i knew i wanted to like, explore like gender studies more particularly like feminist history that's really what I was interested in and so um, I actually started as a poli-sci major because I have on my dad's side of the family there's quite a few judges and stuff and I was like oh, okay like maybe I'll take this policy or like this route and I'll go towards like more like policy and things of that nature and then I was like nope I don't like this there's not enough like people-centered nature to like what this field is doing and so I switched to anthropology. And then I had a minor in women and gender studies um, in German, oddly enough. And so that's really, oh, and that was at the University of North Texas in Denton. So I went from South Texas to North Texas, which is a big culture shift for me. They did have a Pride Alliance in my undergrad, and I had a friend who worked there, and that was really kind of the only reason that I went there. I think for a lot of other campuses, The struggle is funding. That was really a big thing there is that it wasn't necessarily well supported administratively. And consequentially, that meant they weren't really well funded financially either. So they were sort of limited in what kind of programs and services they were able to provide. And similarly, and I would say like really across the nation, it's pretty typical to have only two full-time staff, which depending on the size of your campus, like that's a lot of work for two people. I didn't really, like, utilize those services in my undergrad. I actually ended up being more involved as, like, an organizer, as in a feminist organization and working in reproductive justice. So that's really where I started to find frameworks and theories that made sense to me in terms of working with people. And so I went to several, like, conferences and got to learn a lot from Loretta Ross and a lot of Black feminists. And that's really where I tried to ground my work. So then I went straight into grad school because I was like, get me out of Texas. It's the only way to get out of here fast. So I applied for the Master's of Student Affairs program at UCLA. And that's a one-year accelerated program focused on the practitioner side. And so I went to UCLA for a year and I did my internship with student organizations, leadership and engagement. So I was working with student organizations primarily, but um, also I was really interested in they have a student affairs mitigation team and sort of what that looks like is anything related to free speech that happens on, on the campus. So UCLA is a public campus and any large events, they call in different student affairs staff to help support those events. And so I was really interested of like, what does that look like? How do you how are we navigating on different campuses? What free speech looks like? both like upholding that value, but also maintaining the safety and the campus climate. And I liked looking a lot at policy in regards to um, student organizations, funding structures, all of that. I was just very interested in that. So that's where I did, I spent a lot of my time at UCLA focusing on, was really student organizations. Then after graduation, I was like, I know that I want to work in a cultural center. That's where I want to be. That's what I want my next move to be. I had tried to be in all these professional LGBTQIA plus spaces prior to graduating from my master's program and it just hadn't worked out for me. And I was, no, I want to dedicate this time. And then I was very fortunate that I have family here to support me, like in the job search. And then I applied for the supervisor role here at CSUN in the Pride Center. That's where I really started. About three years ago now. And in that role, I was directly supervising, I think it was still about 10 people, maybe a little less, maybe like eight or nine student staff directly and um, supporting them in creating different programs and events for the LGBTQIA plus community on our campus. Um, I did do some walk in appointments for any students that were looking for any additional services or just to kind of talk to somebody on campus. And then I really feel like I ended up leaning more into that relationship building aspect of working with students. And so as you start to build that rapport with students, like more students start showing up. And so that really started to become a lot of the work that I was trying to do was really understand the context of the university and the experience for LGBTQI plus students across the campus because different students have very different experiences based on what department programs and social spaces that they end up in. And so I really wanted to get sort of an idea of what the diverse set of experiences were on campus and really supporting what do you want to do what do you want to accomplish and helping them do that in a strategic way and so that's really what I was and a lot of I found a lot of I think I'd always had passion for training so in in organizing I had done quite a few workshops on different topics regarding feminist movements putting them in context in like organizing history and specifically trainings on black women, black queer women in their experiences. And then when I started in the supervisor role, that was something that I wanted to lean into. I think I really like training. I like that like hands-on experience to really sit down and meet somebody where they're at and support them in their growth and development and whatever like knowledge area that I was working in. And so As COVID happened, we had some major transitions within our organization, and we really just got to the point where we're like, we really need somebody who is able to directly oversee and support all of the resource centers housed under the USU. And so when that position was created, that's how Serena Loeb became the assistant director of resource centers, who was previously the manager. Serena had been the only full-time staff in the beginning when we opened in 2013, the first full-time staff member of the Pride Center. And as she moved up into that role, I started in a coordinator, like an acting coordinator role as I was like gaining the professional experience to really take over the manager role that I'm in now, as of like two months ago, officially, I think. <laughs> Something like <Congratulations>. that. Um,
0: <laughs> thank you. <Congrats>. That's amazing. <laughs>
2: That's how I got here today pretty much.
0: Awesome. Thank you for sharing so much of your story and I'm I'm curious if you could share for our audience for people who might not have gone to school with a pride center or might not have gone to a school when it had a pride center, what is a pride center? What is the value of having a pride center on campus?
2: Yeah. So a Pride Center is really the LGBTQI plus campus resource center on any campus. So the names of it varies. So I'll speak to California specifically. We have the UC system and then we have the Cal State system. Um, and they have different historical contexts of how the, their LGBTQI plus campus resource centers came to be. For a lot of the Cal States, even though there was a lot of activism, CSUN even in particular around ethnic studies and different ethnic and cultural specific spaces at that time when those movements were happening there was not necessarily a movement that was asking specifically for an LGBTQI plus space but on the uc campuses that was something that happened and so those were those started earlier and especially in during like the aids crisis And what was happening to the community, just really recognizing there's a higher level of support needed for that community and that they were on the college campus. So like acknowledging that they were on the college campus, which I think also because there's still CSUs that do not have a Pride Center or an LGBT Center. And I think a lot of that comes from collecting data more intentionally on an institutional level. So I think being able to prove that those students are there and getting an idea about their experience, whether it's through campus climate or directly through student demands. And that's really how our Pride Center was created, was directly from student organizing. Students said, there's not a space for me to get support specifically as an LGBTQIA plus student. I don't feel safe on this campus and I want a space that's mine to form community and feel safe. That's how our center was created, directly through those efforts. I know Cal State Dominguez Hills just opened theirs a couple of years ago, and they just also expanded to a Latinx cultural resource center. And so same thing. They were students who were just doing the work in their student organizations, serving their, their peers in that way. And then that led to a demand for space and institutional support through providing that space. And so generally I would say we all have different ways that we are able to function. We're a little different because we're located under the university student union which is an auxiliary. So we're not directly under the state and so the way that we function is a little bit different as we're able to function as a nonprofit organization. Really I I mean like when Serena started and working with the students I really just tried to understand holistically what LGBTQIA plus student needs are on the campus, and I look at our funding, our current programming structure, our staff, all of those things, and, I'm, and I see how can we provide that support, or how can we build relationships with community partners and make sure they have access to that support. And then the other part is the physical space of creating a colorful, welcoming space that's meaningful to the community, and some of that is really difficult and you really have to lean into conflict resolution and like restorative justice of what happens when somebody has a negative experience in this space. How do we mend that relationship and recognize that We really try to build the culture of we are all community and we are like accountable for our actions and the harm that we do within that community. And we also support each other for all the good of all the good things and positive things that we bring into the space and uplift the people doing those work.
1: Thank you for that context and that background. And I definitely get the feeling that what you're doing at Cal State Northridge could be a model for. For all of the universities in the entire country, I was incredibly impressed, as I said, with the services that you have and the space that you've created and having been in the space a couple of times now it's amazing it's incredible it's very intentionally created and crafted and and i had not been aware of all of the things that you the resources that you have available for students so i we want to ask you about that but before we get into the specifics of the programs you have and how you created the space i want to just kind of l- Reach out to our listeners and say that we're coming from different perspectives and this is valuable for a variety of reasons. One being I wanted to just bring up Jackie's experience as a college student, but I'll start with my experience as a parent. Jackie came out halfway through college pretty much as a, as a trans woman and transitioned. I think largely between her second and third year of college. And so, but that was in San Francisco, which we all have certain ideas about. San Francisco, and they may or may not be true. And as a parent, looking back, this was six years ago, it's kind of Surprising to me, having come from being a professor at a university and I did know about the Pride Center at CSUN at that time, I never thought to encourage her to look for resources on campus. I that you probably don't remember us having any of those conversations, Jackie. And I don't think she thought, while I'm sure her campus had resources, I don't think she thought to really look into the resources available on campus. And I know as a parent uh, who's involved in many parents of LGBTQIA plus kids at all ages, we talk constantly about how can we make sure that our kids are going to friendly schools and that they know about the resources available. And they think about the navigating the dorm situation and things that I'm sure you hear about all of the time, Whitney. So looking back, it's kind of surprising to me that I it didn't even occur to me, which is why we want to be having this conversation with you, Whitney, to make parents aware, to make young people aware, to make people at universities, working at universities aware. And Jackie, just can you speak to that since that was your experience and you you didn't really look to campus resources to support you through that time, even though I know you've talked about what a challenging time that was.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's an interesting example. I, I can't speak to what resources are or are not available at USF because I did not avail myself of those resources. I think that I was very lucky to come out in a city that is very inherently queer accepting and has lots of different queer spaces. And I have had other queer spaces that I've been actively involved in, and that I found a lot of community in places like democratic clubs and other institutions like that, that were a little bit more politically focused. So I think that if if I had not had that community elsewhere, if I had not had those spaces accessible to me, If I had been going to college, even having grown up in the Valley, the Valley is a very different place. It's not explicitly queer affirming everywhere you look in the way that San Francisco is. And I think had I gone to school there, it would have made a lot more sense and I would have been a lot more likely to utilize a resource center. And I'm sure there are people who utilize the resource center here in San Francisco too. But just for me, that that was my personal experience.
1: And Jackie, just to follow up on that a little bit before we get into the CSUN model, the Cal State Northridge model, from what I recall, your school was very supportive. Is that correct? In terms of changing your name and your pronouns and your professors were on board and there was not really a lot of difficulty around that, which Whitney, you probably hear a lot about this and help students navigate this. I know that while I was still teaching at CSUN, professors were not all aware and campus the campus community was not all aware or as informed as we now have become because we we've, we've learned a lot in that time. But Jackie, from what I recall, was that your experience?
0: Yeah, I was really lucky. I mean, I had... Probably two professors who I had had classes with them prior to coming out and I had classes with them the first semester after I was out. So I sent them both an email and said, heads up, I am transitioning and this is my name and these are my pronouns. They both said, great, no problem. And they both were pretty on top of it and weren't really misgendering me or dead naming me in class, despite having known me before. Similarly, I sent the administration an email and got my updated ID pretty quickly. So I had a really smooth experience. And I'm, I'm sure that if I hadn't, I probably would have turned to a Pride Center or whatever our equivalent was, because I'm sure that not everyone is so lucky to have totally accepting teachers who are going to, or professors who are going to be really good with pronouns and names, or really accepting and supportive administration staff who are just going to easily get you that new ID and all all those things. And thankfully I, I was not living in the dorms at the time I came out, That that definitely would have complicated things a fair amount as well.
1: Thank you, Jackie. So I think that's a nice segue into asking Whitney to tell us more about the services and the space, because I know for a fact that these are the kinds of things that you really help students with. You talk to us about where to go in online to the portal and put a name and and pronouns and things like that. So tell us about the services. That would be great.
0: So
2: CSUN, I'll start with preferred name. Um, CSUN does have a preferred name process. Um, We're currently evaluating where it's at and how we want to continue to adapt it to better meet students' needs and particularly trans students' needs. And also me and my colleagues at other CSUs are really trying to look how to integrate it throughout this system. Um, so that's something that we're trying to do to where, okay, and really I was looking at it as, oh, I also worked at the Dina Students all four years of my undergrad. So I worked in a lot of conduct, FERPA, all of that stuff. And to me, it really kind of comes down to the same principles of FERPA of only people who need access to your legal name really should have access to it. If it's not relevant to the services or the work that you're doing on campus, you should not have access to that information. And so that's really kind of the direction that we're moving, is finding ways to accomplish that. Because as we've heard feedback from students, they really agree that there's, that keeps coming out because there's no reason for them to have that name. I don't use that name and it's not relevant to any interaction that I have with that person. You are able to add a preferred name within the portal and you just go to your student center and you're able to change your first name. So something we're working on is also being able to change your last name because obviously the preferred name option definitely helps trans students specifically, but there's a lot of other reasons why people change their name or a lot of other reasons why someone may need to change their last name and why that would be meaningful to them and impactful to their educational experience. So really just looking at that, again, holistically, what what is the need and how do we create this service to meet that need? Um, You are also able to put pronouns. I believe when professors pull their rosters, the pronouns are available for them to see. But I think... Just the way that rosters work, you get to select what you want it to print out and what you want visible to you. So sometimes that's a challenge is really some faculty not recognizing the importance of having that information, particularly if you're going to call roll or if you're trying to learn how to address your students. I think like most of us have accepted that. It's important to pronounce people's names correctly. It's important to have the correct name for somebody. But I think really that gap is it's also important to know someone's pronouns, especially if you're in a context like a classroom where you're going to, you know, you want your students to engage and you want to be able to appropriately gender and communicate with them. Again, that's something we're working on and it's also a drop down right now, so I'm I'm definitely advocating for it to be just a text box, just with the recognition that people like me, like I use a neo pronoun and there's so many neo pronouns that exist. There's no way we're going to be able to keep up with it in a list. So just realistically, time and labor looking, like it just makes more sense for it to be an open text box. And so students currently are only able to select to change their name in Canvas and then The other one is their email. So their name will change directly in their email. I'm also working on the notification because I think people get confused. If you change, like, say you want to change your name in Canvas, but you weren't ready to change your name in your email, and then you go back and do that later, you don't get that additional confirmation. So I just want to make it really clear and easy process. That's really the goal there. And then the Pride Center, like I said, we provide that physical community building space. We have a TV. We have a media library. So that includes books and DVDs and even CDs, I think. And then we have our couches. We have computer workstations. And then we have a sexual health resource station. So we have free external and internal condoms, dental dams, um, water-based and silicone-based lube. And then we also have a little bit of flavored lube left, but we've moved away from that because I want more people to use lube safely in a number of circumstances. And then if students have any questions about how to use those items, they can ask the front desk or if they want to have a more private one-on-one conversation, I'm happy to walk them through how those things work. We also have information on accessing PrEP and PEP by the sexual health resource space and different community organizations that do free testing and free PrEP and PEP prescriptions, or they make it available to people.
0: And Whitney, sorry for our audience, can you tell anyone out there who might not know what PrEP and PEP are and why they're important?
2: Yes. so PrEP and PEP. Help with HIV prevention, so you can take one preventatively before you engage in sexual activity, and the other one is after engaging in sexual activity. I believe, what's the word for that? Prophylactic, I believe. (laughs) Yes. Yes, so we do offer just information on where to access that, specifically in the Valley, as well as some LA, because we recognize not everybody lives in the Valley just because they go to school here. So we try to have diverse resources as well as HIV testing. So free HIV tests. Most, a lot of places do free rapid HIV testing, but not a lot of places do free blood tests, HIV testing. So again, we try to provide different resources for the different kinds of support. We also have, we we were able to get some take-home rapid HIV tests. So we do have a select number of those available. And then we also keep the cards for them to reach out to different organizations that focus on HIV prevention, so that if they need that additional emotional or psychological support with getting a diagnosis or anything like that, they have those services as well. There's also the iStart program on our campus that provides free rapid HIV testing, and we often partner with them. I know that they're currently in the process of getting more grant money because they're a grant-funded program. Then we also have testing on campus through the Clot Center. It's just that is at cost. And then with STI testing, I don't know if y'all are familiar with F Pact and all that and how that works. So basically it is a, a public health service in I I know how it works in California. I don't know about other states, <laughs> but it provides free to low cost reproductive health services. But the challenge with that for like say gay men, they don't they can't be F. We call it getting F-pacted, right? Like they don't, they can't get those services because they are not having sex with someone that they are able to reproduce with. So they don't get access to that free or low cost testing. That's a whole nother issue of why that needs to just be free. But yes. And then also for different trans folks who that is a more complicated question for them. But they are available at cost. They are also able to, if you have a prescription for hormone replacement therapy already, they're able to fill that prescription in their pharmacy. If you want somebody to administer any medication related to HIT or you have any questions, they are able to do that through our health center. Like I said, there's other institutions. The UCs are very lucky because they're usually attached to hospitals and medical schools. And so they may have more comprehensive options in terms of HRT, getting gender therapists, different things like that. As a CSU, we don't necessarily have that connection to a hospital. That is what we currently provide in terms of health services. We also have menstrual products for those who may be. So currently at CSUN, they have menstrual products in all of the gender inclusive and women's restrooms for free. Obviously, there's people who maybe need menstrual products who are still using the men's restroom. And so we really just wanted to continue to provide those products for free for somebody who wanted to grab them from an environment where they didn't feel like they were being judged or stared at for accessing those resources. That's our little sexual health area. like right It's like right by our door. It says, please come and take it. You don't have to ask any questions. That's that part. And then we also have lots of board games for people who just want to like hang out with each other and find different ways to like get to know new people. We have a TV with different streaming services. So that allows us to do different screenings sometimes or just watch a show together, talk about how, like, oh, so-and-so is like a non-binary icon. Things like that. We have... Direct one-on-one meetings available currently with me. I'm the only full-time professional staff, but we will have a supervisor who will also be full-time and does those appointments with students. Often, it's similar to working in the Dean of Students Office then you're in charge of conduct. A lot of times people don't know we exist until someone refers us as a resource because something happened. I have quite a few of those meetings of, hey, this professor is refusing to use my correct name. This professor is misgendering me in the classroom, or sometimes it's just about like how content is approached within the classroom, maybe like dividing people based on gender and creating uncomfortable experiences for students, or talking about concepts in very gendered ways. And when they try to open up for a more nuanced conversation, feeling like they were shut down or told those things aren't relevant. So that's especially because. We have folks, I have folks in like CTVA. So yes, you're working on campus and doing like film projects on campus, but you may also be working with outside entities on a film project. And so those kind of gray areas of like, how do I approach this? Because I can't go to the school to advocate for me. So what does it look like to have those kinds of conversations in a professional setting? Then moving on to our programs. we have we have like different areas of how i like to really divide our programs and this also goes into how i approach staffing so We have queer and trans people of color specific programs. So those programs are made specifically for community building and resources for our queer and trans people of color. And for them, sometimes they want a private space where it's only other queer and trans people of color. And so those are some of the spaces we try to cultivate. And we also try to address the educational portion of offering other like opportunities to learn more about different, like their history and other events going on different communities, how to support them, like the campus community. So we try to address all of those areas. And then we have trans programs and services. So I have, so for QTPOC services, I have two Pride Center assistants who their focus is on queer and trans people of color programs and services. And then for trans programs and services, the same. I have two student assistants who focus on trans programs and services for the year specifically. And then they also facilitate our trans, non-binary, genderqueer, and gender-expansive and (laughs) gender-questioning weekly community-building space. It used to be more of a discussion-based space, but we just wanted to open it up for there to be room for people who just want to meet new people, but also people who want to have in-depth conversations with other trans folks. Sharing resources was like really the big thing about Tea Time, which is our community building space. They facilitate that space, and then they also do the programming for it's called Trans Awareness Week nationally, but we call it our Trans Empowerment Week here on our campus. And then Trans Day of Visibility, and then they partner with any trans orgs like in the Valley and LA, and then student organizations. And then we have like our just community building programs. Those are things like our coffee nights, which are held weekly that are open to everybody. So they really provide that opportunity of I can go to this event and not feel like I'm outing myself because everybody is welcome. And so I know it's not just like an LGBTQI plus space. And so sometimes people just need that free space to kind of explore and get to know other people. Then we've also started to kind of like theme the nights for different communities under the LGBTQIA plus umbrella. So we've had a Les night. We had a Bi night. We're planning on having an Ace night for the fall. It's because it is actually, what is it? It's like Ace Awareness Day. It actually falls really close to Halloween. So we're going to have like a spooky night. I keep saying the pun because I think it's so funny. But yeah, and so we're creating those other spaces intentionally for community building, but also we have our, every month we also have one that's just welcome to everybody. I'm working on making a specific position for this, but we do have Deaf Queer Coffee Nights. So I'm working on having someone on our team who is specifically responsible for Deaf Queer and Disability um, programming for programming and services at the Pride Center, just because we have a very large Deaf population on our CSUN campus. And they show up strong. Like that one is always like 50 plus people every time. And so I just want to make sure that I have someone adequately addressing their needs and also as part of the community, because that's very important for the deaf community for them to be in charge of their own spaces and not have it done on their behalf. That's one area. And then. I think those are, like, the major programming areas. And then we, in terms of, like, more services, we have have a gender-inclusive clothing closet. So we ask for donations in the fall, and usually that's all we need, and we have clothes for the whole year. Um, And people, we do have set up pop-ups, so opportunities that are, hey, anybody on campus, if you stop by, we'll have all the stuff out, come grab it. But if anybody comes in the center, we usually let people grab fumrit like for the year until we donate it to. We usually try to find other LGBTQIA plus orgs that maybe aren't as well resourced that also have clothing closets, and we ask like what items they're looking for, and then we try to donate those if we have them, and then the rest of them we just donate to like, any organization that's like needing clothing. And then we also are working on having our legal name change clinics again. Um, it's just been really difficult to find somebody to partner with who is a lawyer or an attorney specifically to kind of explain the legal processes. Um, but we have had sort of like overarching like, here's what the process looks like. Um, we're not able to look at your application and really tell you what needs to be fixed. But we have this service to tell you, here's what to expect from the process and then we are also trying to get hiv testing back on campus we used to have weekly hiv testing that we brought a, camp, a community partner to do on campus we're just working on the logistics of that in terms of insurance scheduling all of those things and then those are our direct services and then i also i'm specifically responsible for lgbtqi plus training on our campus so I do that on multiple levels, both like students' levels, so like student orgs or anything like that, classroom level. I've been like invited to do like facilitation on different conversations about gender and specifically like the trans community and different contexts, both like, oh, I'm going to be a counselor. What does it look like to work with this population? As well as. More nuanced conversations about like sex and how that impacts like care in terms of like, psychology classes. I've done that all the way up to like departments, and like, it's weird. It's like some. De- it's like the sometimes the admin will come to the department that they oversee. So I also do it on that level, just not directly with the group of student affairs like leadership team, and then I also do it specifically for the USU, since we're our own organization ourselves, like as a nonprofit. And then we also collaborate. That's our big thing, is trying to collaborate across campus, because I think that really contributes to visibility on the campus. And just recognizing that there are going to be, similar to you, Jackie, like there's queer and trans people everywhere, and they may never come like step foot in the Pride Center, but just making sure that we're doing the work to create those spaces across campus and support any student efforts to do so. So that's really our goal in terms of campus-wide holistically. And then I work with other offices like Title IX, Office of Equity and Compliance, to specifically help with demystifying kind of the reporting process for any sort of like bias incidents and what's a bias incident versus something that's like considered a hate crime, what's discrimination? All of those things, and I can serve as like a support person. so if they have to have a meeting with Title IX or Office of Equity and Compliance, I can go with them and be their support person. And then we also work with like Strength United and they provide they have a Pride United under their program, and they do specific different support groups for LGBTQI plus survivors of intimate partner violence and sexual assault. So they focus on that. And then UCS, so University Counseling Services, also has support groups for the LGBTQI plus community. We were fortunate enough to have a postdoc that identified as trans to facilitate a trans and non-binary support group as well this year. And that was virtual. So that was exciting. So we're hoping that they continue to have somebody on their team so that we can continue to provide that support group space. And that's actually not because it is virtual, but like even if they held it in person, we likely wouldn't do it in the Pride Center because again, there's certain people who their issue is I had a negative experience in the Pride Center and I don't want to go back and that's totally fine. It doesn't have to be your space, but I want to make sure that you have the resources and support that you need. And I think that's
0: everything. That's a lot. And I really appreciate the level of detail and, and just all the amazing work you're doing for the, for the community at CSUN.
1: Same here. Yeah. I'm, I don't know if you had a, did you have a question, Jackie? I have a question, but I can.
0: I did, but you should go first because mine might take us in a whole other direction.
1: (laughs) Oh, okay. Okay. So mine's just, it's probably pretty quick, but, kind of building on what you said, as Jackie said, you have so much, you offer so much and you're doing so much. Thank you, Whitney, for all that you're doing for our students. I still feel very much part of the family of the campus community. And it just makes me so happy to know that all of this is available for our students. And I'm curious, I'm imagining people listening who are part of much smaller programs at smaller campuses or just getting some kind of pride center off the ground. What have you found are the most successful ways to do outreach to make sure that students know about your services? I I know now we have social media and you're visiting classes. And as I said, you're partnering, as you said, you're partnering. If somebody's just getting started, what's the best way to really get the word out?
2: I think one is just building connections with colleagues across campus, because then once they know you exist, they invite you to their spaces. That's how we've been able to do classroom presentations. The example here, we have a University 100 class, and so they typically invite us to each of the sections to just talk about the Pride Center as a resource, because the whole point of that is getting to know the campus queer studies, a lot of the professors will invite me for like one class. And then they usually provide extra credit for coming to like a Pride Center event and then writing an assignment based on that. And so I think there's other areas that aren't queer studies that also do that. Like I believe journalism does that, like they require them to go to like an LGBTQI plus event or like it's like one specific community and we're like one of them. So that's one is, When you work with faculty on that level, they can find ways to incentivize students to get involved or come learn about us as a resource or invite us into that space. And then the other level is, yes, social media is a big one for students. Primarily utilize Instagram and that's gone well for us. Everybody wants us to make a TikTok, but I'm like, it's so much work. (laughs) But if I have a student who's passionate about it, it'll happen. (laughs) because I do have a social media specific student and then the other part is on the ground kind of talking to people so I had a student this year who was one of my um, trans programs and services assistants and they were like I'm just gonna walk around with the flyers and go talk to people and see what buildings I can put our flyers up in so I think that's important. And then we do tabling both on campus and like now different high schools have actually started to have like their own little pride events towards the end of the year. So that was really sweet. We got invited to a high school to come be there and just getting to hear high schoolers be like, this is so cool. I want to go to CSUN. I want to go hang out in the pride center. So that's really one of my goals for this year that I've set for myself is trying to build those sort of those more access kind of relationships. So Going to high schools and like supporting them in whatever like, LGBTQIO plus related support programs that they're trying to have at their school. And like, I really want to start doing like, more tours of like, our space or like, inviting them to come visit, all of that stuff. So, like, people, because I think what I hear from a lot of people who are like born and raised in the valley is they're like, oh, it's so like, conservative and there's nothing here for me. <laughs> Somos Familia Valle like they're like a community resource that is doing amazing work here they were part of building San Fernando Valley Pride this year that was a beautiful event and I was so happy that we were invited to come to their resource fair so that's another thing we do resource fairs for any LGBTQIA plus events going on in the community Like I said, I just try to be in a lot of different spaces and like encourage my students to collaborate in different events, like when it makes sense. And that really also highlights very, that's our intersectional lens within our programming approach is that, again, recognizing people are queer and a bunch of other things. They're trans and a bunch of other things, and they don't necessarily have to be in the LGBTQIA plus space to have that type of community building or have those types of
0: spaces. So I'm trying to find the right way to frame my next question. You brought up free speech earlier as an issue that people often bring up in these conversations. It reminded me of an incident recently at San Francisco State where some, I can't even remember her name, but some woman who came in like fifth place in a swimming competition that a trans woman happened to also compete in came to speak. She was invited by the college Republicans or something like that. And people made a big deal out of it here. And there were protesters and there was a group of people who actually like blocked her ability to exit the school. And in the moment that was really cathartic for me. I was like, yeah, fuck her. (laughs) <laughs> that's, what, that's, what you, that's what you get for coming to San Francisco and trying to do this. And and obviously, she was surrounded by police officers. Like She was not actually unsafe. But you deserve to feel a little taste of what it's like to be a queer person, to be anyone other than the, the cis white person that you are in this country. And then, you know, whatever. Okay, so that was cathartic on some level. But then as I reflected on it, I was like, oh, we kind of gave them. I feel like we gave them a win or that was an unforced error maybe because then... You have this video of this person being blocked from exiting a hallway by a group of activists and that's on Fox news. And now Tucker Carlson's talking about it. And I'm, and, and so, and so I wonder how do we draw that line of what, and it's such an interesting time because being LGBTQ is a protected, makes you a protected class in California. It it does in most blue States in the country, but it doesn't at, at a national level. And so what, where is that line between free speech and between either giving conservatives a win or censoring someone and ha- and how do you and where is that line between free speech and harassment and discrimination and hate speech and how do you how do you navigate that as someone who i imagine is in the midst of a lot of these conversations
2: yeah it's a lot of it depends on the like context of what's happening so we're a public institution. So what this looks like at a private institution is completely different because they have more control over that. When you're a public campus, it's not just like anybody can come to your campus. It's like anybody can come physically on your campus. And that also plays into protesting and how counter protesting or all those things. And so I think This is going to be continue to be a hot topic in higher education. And I think none of us have really figured out how that's going to look like. And really, in my experience, it's you get to come because like a lot of times they're brought by student groups. So it's different when a student group brings them versus they're trying to rent out space from the university to host their own event. So those are different things. So what might come up is the level of risk. If I bring you to this campus, I might require additional security is usually what happens for like controversial speakers like that. They're like, okay, we're requiring that you have this level of security. Line management is going to look like this because you're going to need barricades. You should have closed entry and exit after this time. So that's like logistically what it looks like in terms of risk management. In terms of organizing and response, I think to me, on the other side, I think to me, it's just equitably applying that law. (laughs) And so when people are counter organizing, you shouldn't be chastising them like they're doing something they're not supposed to, because they're also exercising their free speech in response to that person. And I think it's also, and being consistent and that you're applying it in the same ways. So it shouldn't be like, oh, certain groups are told no, and other ones are told yes. And some of that comes down to money. And so some people, some people might decide not to have an event because they don't have the money to cover the security or things like that. And so I'd say like on our campus, I think, like I said, it's been really working closely with equity and compliance and Title IX to really understand, one, like what does a student want to gain out of reporting? What is their expectation about outcome? And then two, what are we like, legally responsible for documenting? And three, having the student understand what it means to report. Because I think a lot of people don't know that just because you report doesn't mean you have to be involved in the investigation. Just because you report doesn't mean there is an investigation. Sometimes it's just about when we have it documented that those things happen, they're represented. Again, it's represented in the data, and that's something that the university is accountable to having to address. That's typically why, like, if I'm having a conversation with the student, and i'm like hey i really encourage you to report this just because just so that it's documented and so especially with like faculty members if they're doing this to multiple students that's being documented so that they're not like oh we didn't know about this how was there any way for us to know about this and then in terms of protesting in response to that i mean i think a lot of times their goal is to reinforce their persecution complex. But I also think what they don't, I mean, kind of to your point is yes, they're expecting that persecution, but that doesn't mean it's ineffective to, like you said, recreate the level of how we feel unsafe in our day-to-day lives. And, responding in that way I think really kind of what I tried to tell students who are thinking about organizing in that way is with speakers it's just it's going to be what it's going to be it's going to be there are people against you and whatever happens happens in terms of what that looks like and making sure that you're informed of your rights and what is and is not legal what will cause you to be detained Do you have a partner who's willing to cover the cost of bail if people are arrested, being prepared in those ways? There's that side. And then also for other, there's like other circumstances where it's like, if you're trying to get the university to do something, I understand we can get caught up we need to do something now, like I've activated, like I'm emotional. I want to make it happen. And that's totally valid. Do that, like run with that. But also there's the strategy piece of like, do you have a list of demands? And that's what I really try to push you, is do you have a list of demands? Do you have a list of things that you need to happen? Do you have a list of things that the university can hold itself accountable to? It's like both of, like, I try to encourage you to be, like them to be strategic if they're asking for something specific telling them how to also do that safely. And that's based on my own experience of like, here's how you do this safely. And I want, and I want them, I my goal is to have that relationship with them where they tell me that they're going to do stuff. So I can be like, Hey, here are things to consider <laughs> or where or sometimes it's, we're prepared to keep them safe because it's not always the situation that police are there or that there's additional security. So being able to be on the ground with them and like, do you have water? Like like the USU did that when there was protests happening on our campus after George Floyd. The USU was out there where like, do you have water? Do you need snacks? Supporting them in that way.
0: That is some great organizing advice. <laughs> I hope everyone's listening.
1: Definitely. Good, good topics some conversation. I think this is going to really help people see what's possible, how to really provide a rigorous set of programs and services and support and to really staff it and fund it in the way that it deserves. And I could see, I'm sure you could do a lot more, even a lot more, and I'm sure you would like to see a lot more support and funding, and we hope that you will. So I'm curious, Whitney, as we kind of wind down and and really express our gratitude for you for sharing so much rich, valuable information about what you've created and how that can be a model and what Cal State Northridge has created in the Pride Center and and how that can be a model for other universities, other higher education institutions. What else would you like people to know? What would you like our listeners to know about how to do this and how to do it well?
2: I just think I want to touch on my future goals. And I think also, I just had, we had our Southwest regional meetup for, so I met up with my colleagues from other LGBT centers. And so I think what we all notice is we're all trying to have LGBTQIA plus resources. And I think this has continued to be a trend of, there's there just needs to be trans-specific resources and support. And there needs to be somebody who is specifically responsible for that work, because this is hundreds of years of policy and practice on us. It's often like we're pulled in the room. And we're like, great, we want to do this work. But that's a lot of work to do it well. So I think a lot of us are starting to have trans like care specialists or they, they've they called them different terms on different campuses. So that's really my hope is that we are able to add that here at CSUN because that's really been something that the students have voiced that they want. I think it's also necessarily of, like we were talking about trans healthcare and trans support and like what that looks like. The thing about that is it's never just the medical transition. It's never just the social or all the other aspects of transition, and it's so much more issues that intersect with other issues that make things complicated and make things difficult. And honestly, it leads to um, on the educational context, um, somebody leaving the institution because they're just not able to focus on their education in that way, or all of those things and so really looking at holistically what does it mean to support trans students and they can't be there's so many issues and like structures that need to be built it can't just be all under the LGBT center. That's really my recommendation is just getting to know your campus getting to know your students building relationships with them So that you really, when they need something, they come to you. When there's a concern that they're having, they come to you. I just let them let me know what's going on because there's new people coming on this campus every year, now every semester, now that we've changed our admin policy, things are always going to be changing because there's different people on this campus. And I just try to keep that in mind. And I'm, I'm really hopeful for the future that we are able to have some sort of position like that and really start to dig in systemically at some of the things going on here. These institutions were built for wealthy plantation owners. And so it's never going to be a liberatory system in that way. But at the very least, I think, Trans folks and LGBTQIA plus folks deserve like the equity to have the opportunity for access to education, whatever that looks like for them, whether it's in the higher ed context or other ways. We need to invest in the well-being and the thriving and lives (laughs) of trans people.
1: Very well said. And I, yes, I just want to say, as a me. yeah, as a mom who of of a daughter who came out and transitioned during her college years, it's very heartening to hear that. And and as part of support groups with many parents who have younger kids who are looking to going to college who are trans, I really I think they're going to find a lot of comfort in hearing everything you've shared, and especially that last piece about how important this is because navigating. The medical health care that's needed, the mental health care that might be, you know, helpful, the, the navigating professors and pronouns and gender related kinds of activities in class. And I think back to how, how clueless I was and, and didn't really think about a lot of those things. So I think that support is. So needed, and there's a long way to go, and a lot of young people are are not getting the support that they need to be able to thrive in higher education or to feel safe entering higher education as as trans and non-binary people. And as you said, the whole LGBTQIA rainbow, but I really appreciate that there are you know there are very specific trans-specific <laughs> concerns that that are really important to make sure there's resources and support around in higher ed. Jackie, thoughts?
0: I think this was a great episode. You know anyone who is looking at schools and considering resources that might be available, definitely share this with them. And thank you, Whitney, again, for all the great work you're doing and for taking the time to record this episode.
2: Also, my hot take to the
0: parents, don't trust
2: the Campus Pride Index. Just go to the LGBT Center website.
1: Ooh, that's really, okay, very good (laughs) tip okay because a lot of parents actually look at what's listed
2: as the resources and the programs like actually look at it
1: Mm, really good tip yeah because there are all these indexes and oh these are the most lgbtq plus friendly campuses and like how do we know and what what exactly how 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 are you determining this categories yep yeah thank you so go to the actual school website look at the lgbtq i Plus, resource center, whatever is there. What are the services? What do they have? And you can even ask to, you probably have you ever had parents reach out to you and say, my kids coming there? What do you have yeah. for them? Or even, yeah.
2: or even prospective students are like, I want to yeah. know what's there. Like, is this an option? Or they just, if they live in the valley, sometimes they just come in and they're high schoolers and they're like, oh, okay, these are all the things that you do. And I think also the other piece of that is, we're working on just an LGBTQIA plus at CSUN website so Mm -hmm. that it's not all on just the Pride Center website. And it's going to have for that goal of like prospective students, parents, because we have an LGBTQIA plus advisory committee. Mm -hmm. And so really understanding what is the experience for LGBTQIA plus students? What are all of the resources across Mm -hmm. campus I definitely think there's several other universities that take that approach. They just have that page and then it takes you to the different resources. So I would recommend those or the specific Pride Center website. If you have any questions, if they're at, they're usually at orientation. If they're not at orientation, that's a problem and a red flag already. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like if they're not at any part of like the Mm -hmm. admin process, just connecting with them and be like asking those follow-up questions of, I get that all the time from parents. Like, hey, like students, very specific specific circumstances, can you help them? And I go,
1: yes. <laughs> I love it. I'm so glad you brought that up before we wrapped up, Whitney, because I think a lot of schools, just kind of like rainbow capitalism, all these companies trying to say, oh, we're LGBTQ friendly, but they're not in their policies and their services. All the universities now want to say, oh, we have a Pride Center or we have... We have the LGBTQIA plus housing dorm or dorm specific, but that's not enough. They they of course they want your money. <laughs> they want the or like
2: what does that housing actually look like? Just because you say you have it, is it actually right. affirming?
1: Right. Actually exactly. Yes. Yeah. So be a little we need to be a little skeptical. I think I hate to be cynical, but we need to really investigate that and and ask them to show us what they've actually got to back up that claim that they're gonna support our LGBT. BTQIA plus kids. So thank you or young people. I shouldn't say kids when you're, you're a young adult, when you're coming to a university and it's a critical time in life where the support is essential. Mm -hmm. So thank you, Whitney. We are so, so grateful for this conversation. You've taught us so much and we know this episode is going to be really popular. It's going to help a lot of people. So thank you for taking the time away from students who I'm sure are ready outside your door. (laughs) Because I know you have a very open door, warm and welcoming policy. So we'll let you get back to doing the all important work that you do. And we're so thankful to you. Thanks, Whitney. Thanks so much, y'all, for having me. Great to chat with you. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.
0: Thank you so much for listening to our Transgender School podcast. We hope you learned something new and that you're inspired to learn more.
1: If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. And please be sure to check out our website, transgenderschool.org. You'll find many valuable resources there, including news about upcoming courses we'll be teaching.
0: Make sure to join us for future podcast episodes. We'll catch you on the first Tuesday of every month.